Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval terms apply placing a trade shouldn't be complicated it should be smooth as butter the fidelity app makes investing easy with zero commission u.s stock and etf trades no account minimums and fractional shares trading fidelity where nothing comes between you and the trade that's smooth download our app free from the app store or google play Sell orders are subject to an activity assessment fee from $0.01 cent to $0.03 cents per $1,000 of principal. No account minimums apply to retail brokerage accounts only. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Oh, hey, it's your friend who looks at listings of houses she has no intention of buying. Allie Ward back with another episode of The Ologies. So this is a real sweet one. Uh, it's got everything. Everything that you crave. There's a personal connection to The Ology. A very surprising backstory. My copious sweating. There's human cyborgs. And there's reasons to drink pee. But first... A quick thank you to everyone who's supporting on Patreon and who tells friends and coworkers and fam. Um, this week, Ologies was number three on the science charts up there with the NPR giants. So thanks to everyone who listens and subscribes and rates and, of course, reviews. Old Dad Word Von Podcast reads them all. And because talking into a microphone in your closet toward a pile of laundry can be kind of a weird kind of lonesome, your reviews always keep me going. So I read a new one each week. This week, uh, this one's from Dermal Denticle, who says, kept my ADHD attention. I thought podcasts might just not be for me, but I'm so glad I gave Ologies a listen. Thanks for making everything from my college commute to shoveling a crap ton of snow off the driveway a little joyful. I hope to listen to these as an ologist one day. Well, thank you, Dermal Denticle, for spending time in the freezing cold with me. Speaking of ologists, let's meet this week's diabetologist, which, as I say often... It's a real frickin' word, but what is it? What is diabetology? Um, first off, it is not diabetology, as I thought, so I was wrong. Oops. Diabetology is the science of diabetes diagnosis and its treatment. So it's a term, it's used in medicine, but just not super formally. So it might refer to a doctor who has like an interest or special skills with diabetic patients, which this ologist very certainly does. He has been studying the disease for over 25 years, and he's only in his mid-30s. So we became internet pals in 2013. He makes these really great science drawings, and I have watched his journey from med student to MD, and I have never met a doctor so passionate about his work or his patients or the cause of diabetes. He has a vested, deep, and gloopy interest in the hormones that regulate our blood sugar, which I am so excited to talk about. Um, he was in LA from New York City over the summer, and so we sat down in my living room. We had a gab, even though it was blazing hot, and his Friday afternoon lift across town had him arriving an hour late. He was so stressed out, he didn't realize it in LA. Showing up an hour late is pretty punctual. So we cleaved this episode in two. In this first one, you're going to learn of his staggering, very heartwarming journey to being a doc, what blood sugar does, how it affects your mood and energy in every cell in your body, the keto diet versus veganism, how many people have diabetes, 
what could cause it, and why I fall asleep in pants a lot. Also, how to handle the emotional aspects of a busted pancreas. So we're about to spill some unsweetened tea on the topic of your blood sugar with wonderful person and diabetologist, Dr. Mike Natter, MD. Dr. Mike Natter. Dr. Allie Ward. I'm not a doctor. You are Dr. Natter. You are a doctor. I am. You have been a doctor for how long? Three years. Let's see. So I started, I finished med school in 2017. Mm -hmm. So I've been a doctor for th almost three years. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your shitty pancreas. I have a shitty pancreas. <laughs> let's talk about it. It's busted. <laughs> you've been a diabetic mm -hmm. longer than you've been a diabetologist. True. So Dr. Natter is in his final year of internal medicine residency, and he will soon be a board-certified internist, which then leads to a two-year endocrinology fellowship, but he sees and treats patients with diabetes and, again, has been studying diabetes for decades. At what point did you realize that you're not only the president, you're also a customer? <laughs> like, at what, at what point did you realize, I am baby Mike Natter, and I've got a busted shitty pancreas? At what point did I realize I was diabetic? Yeah. Oh, oh, the origin story. Yeah. We're gonna dig in. Yeah, we're gonna dig in because I've, as long as I've known you, I've known you're you're diabetic. Yeah. Type one. Yeah, we've known each other for five years. I know. Oh, Doctor Ward, we go back. I know. I've known your pancreas this long, <laughs> and it's still not working. It's a lazy piece of shit. I know. Yeah, it's <laughs> terrible. I can hear you. So okay, let's see. So I was. This was um, two weeks after my ninth birthday. Mm-hmm. I remember very well. It was pretty traumatic, unfortunately. Um, I was super lethargic. I was really tired. Mm -hmm. And I would wake up at night three, four, five times um, to urinate, but also to, you know, chug water. I was like the, I was parched beyond belief. You would chug and then you would need to chug more. You would, you would be thirsty like you wouldn't believe. Nothing would satiate it. And then you'd be peeing constantly wow that's a lot um so those were kind of the symptoms initially this went on for maybe a week or two um and then it just got to the point where i was losing weight i looked very ill and there was one day when um in in mid-september when i started to get ill i was vomiting and couldn't i couldn't move and i just looked awful and my dad scooped me up i'll never forget he actually scooped me up in his arms and carried me to um, the ER at Mount Sinai in New York City. I uh, was kind of in and out and ended up kind of falling into a coma. Um, yeah, it was very traumatic. But I had the, from what they tell me at the time, the highest blood sugar on history at Mount Sinai at the time. So in 94, yeah. What were we talking? It was up there. So if the normal range of glucose is like blood glucose, yours right now is probably like 100, you know, you run in that range. Um, and high glucose, it's typically like 200, 300, 400. My glucose was 1,600. What? Yeah. Oh, it was really bad. That's so bad. It was bad. It wasn't good. It was not good. And a baby yeah. nine-year-old, how long do yeah. you think you had had type 1 diabetes before you were diagnosed? Probably a few months. Okay. Um, it's, I would have probably died if it was more than that. I don't think anyone can live with type 1 undiagnosed for more than a few months. No, probably, probably, um, probably less, maybe like a month. Yeah. God. And let's dig straight into what is diabetes. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So, so diabetes. So there's there's flavors of diabetes. So we're talking about diabetes mellitus, you and I. Okay. 
Um, if we look at the the etiology and the mm-hmm. etymology, I'll let you dig into that. But my understanding is, I think it translates diabetes itself translates into siphon. And the idea is that it's a siphon because you're ingesting so much fluid and you're just peeing it out. And so back in the day, the doctors who were observing this were like, oh, they're like a siphon. They're just fluid going in, fluid coming out. Melodus translates to something like sweet or honey coated or something like that. So back in the day, physicians would actually kind of do a little bit of take a little little taste test. And really? That's how you could tell that there was urine, there was sugar in the urine. And so siphon of fluid coming in and going out and it's sweet sweet urine diabetes mellitus oh my god you're a sugar colander <laughs> you're a honey colander that's right p.s if you haven't heard the melatology episode it's about bees and honey also if your name is melissa and you have a bad pancreas your name means bee which is sweet like maybe your pee oh no is it hygienic to drink urine no, it's not a good okay. thing. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend it. Although, if there's no infection, um, yeah, technically, I guess it's sterile. But I, no, we're not going to. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not, that's we're going to put another disclaimer on this whole deal. <laughs> I have an MD. There is no medical advice being given on this show. <laughs> <laughs> um, don't drink your pee. Don't drink your pee. I'm sure there are so many people out there right now just toasting to a glass just, yeah. of their own room temperature urine. <laughs> so many people right now. Oh, my God. Yeah. With the healthcare industry, what it is. What else are you going to do? Cheers. Cheers. Okay, quick side note, why not, on pee drinking, as long as we're here. Do people do this? I mean, I I did draw the line the other day. Apparently, there's an ancient Ayurvedic practice where you drink your own urine. Mm -hmm. Not even Gwyneth Paltrow does this. And though it has roots in ancient medicine, according to one published study I read titled, The Golden Fountain, is urine the miracle drug no one told you about? They say it's a big no. No scientific benefit. Even the army is like, if you're in a survival sitch, it's not worth it. The army also says not to drink booze, seawater, or blood, just no matter how parched you are. It's got a lot of salt. And though it's sterile when it leaves your kidneys, that is true, it can pick up up to 85 different kinds of bacteria on its merry way out of your body tubes. And I want you to know, as I was researching this, I was sipping a really large beaker of lukewarm green tea. Mm. Big mistake. Big. Huge. Um, so what is diabetes? I know that there's two flavors. There's type one, there's type two, there's probably more. Mm-hmm. So is that just the name for when your pancreas stops working? No. So there's so there's more than two flavors, actually. Okay. There's a handful. There's um, something called LADA or latent autoimmune diabetes of adults that's sometimes called 1.5, which oh. is strange. There's gestational diabetes. So there's different flavors of, of like the sugar diabetes. Mm-hmm. But there's also something called diabetes insipidus, which also kind of has that siphon quality where your body, for either central reasons, meaning from the brain or the pituitary, or nephrogenic reasons, meaning from the, the kidney itself, mm-hmm. you're unable to kind of concentrate urine. And so it's really an issue with water and sodium. That's a whole other can of worms. It's not really at all related mm-hmm. to type 1, type 2, or gestational diabetes. Okay, this is the foundation of what diabetes is. So I'm going to reiterate it because it's complicated and important. We're going to go through that once again so we feel like we really know what's up. Okay, so once again, type 1, an autoimmune issue causes your pancreas to stop making insulin. And your pancreas, by the by, if you're like, what is that? It's a large dong-shaped organ that's hiding behind kind of like your liver and stomach area. And most medical illustrators seem to draw it 
Kind of like if a corn on the cob had matching nards, or a lumpy butter sack. Once again, I'm not a doctor. Okay, type 2, according to the American Diabetes Association, is the most common form of diabetes. So type 2 means that your body doesn't use insulin properly, and 90 to 95% of diagnosed cases of diabetes are type 2. Now, between the two, there's a type 1.5, and we are not clowning you. This is a real thing. It's called latent autoimmune diabetes in adults, or LADA, and it shares characteristics of both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Okay, Dr. Natter also mentioned gestational diabetes. That happens in about 10% of pregnancies in otherwise non-diabetic folks, and it's caused by hormones in the placenta messing with how your body responds to insulin. So gestational diabetes, it's usually diagnosed about the 24th week of pregnancy, and it can lead to preeclampsia, which is high blood pressure, depression, or having a large baby, as I like to call them, real lunkers, which is a fishing term. I just applied to your big baby. Okay, there are also a few rare types like monogenic diabetes that's caused by just a single gene. There is cystic fibrosis-caused diabetes. There's brittle diabetes and something called Wolfram syndrome which sounds kind of like the backstory of a hairy superhero. And finally, there's diabetes insipidus, which Dr. Natter mentioned. It is a hormonal issue that makes you unable to make concentrated pee. So you're just thirsty and you pee up to 20 liters a day. And insipidus, by the way, means bland or lacking flavor. So you're a siphon with flavorless pee which is a sick burn. And how huge a health issue is diabetes? So the CDC says it's a seventh leading cause of death in the US. And in the last 20 years, cases have doubled. Almost 10% of Americans, more than 30 million people have diabetes. And one in four of them does not know they have it. So if you are listening to this on the subway or at a rave or like a crowded gym, there's a good chance someone near you has the beatus and may or may not even know it. You can tell them about this episode if you want, but you don't have to. When did you decide that you weren't just going to be a patient, but you were going to be a doctor? That's a really good question. So I grew up as an art kid. So I used to draw my whole life and I still do. Um, but I, there was no medicine in my family. I never really thought that I was smart. I, what? yeah, that no, so loud. <laughs> I, I, I didn't excel academically my whole life. So I was really bad at math and science. I did pretty well in like history and English and art, obviously. And so I never really thought that a career in medicine or anything that, that, you know, people considered like intelligent people would go into was something in the cards for me. Obviously I'm appalled by this. When I was diagnosed with diabetes, I gained this kind of appreciation or this awe of our physiology. Because if you think about it, like the pancreas is doing so many things and it would do it automatically. It was autonomously regulating a, a homeostasis of blood sugar. And now at nine years old, this is like re crazy responsibilities thrust on my shoulders. And it gave me this appreciation for, holy crap, this is really cool, really intense, really beautiful. Mm -hmm. And so I said, it'd be really interesting to be a doctor. But I never thought of it seriously. It was almost like if a kid was like, saw an astronaut and they would be, oh, wow, that would be cool to be an astronaut. But they knew they never really could actually become an astronaut. That's yeah. what I thought about as oh. being a doctor. Yeah. And then here you are. Yeah, it was crazy. Dr. Natter. Thank you. Well, when, at what point did you decide that you were going to pursue medicine? Like, did you have a moment where you said, I can be an artist and a doctor? Or what did you do? Yeah. So I went to undergrad. I started studying studio art. And then in my 
end of my junior year, I had been taking some classes in neuroscience because I found neuroscience interesting, but I was doing it kind of like as an aside. And to my surprise, I did well. I was getting really good grades in neuroscience. And so this was the first time, you know, I was 20 years old in my life that I had, um, you know, good grades in a science-based class. So I thought, oh, I have some academic confidence. And I had this epiphany of like, I need to go to medical school. This is what I need to do. So Dr. Natter graduated with an art degree without taking organic chemistry or calculus because he was afraid he wouldn't be good at it. So he moved back home to New York City and got up the courage to go back to school and tackle those prereqs. How did he do? I moved back home to New York and I did a post-bac pre-med program where you kind of do all those prereqs. And I struggled. I didn't do so hot. I did very mediocre. I mean, I did well for myself, but to get into medical school, it's like very competitive. So I did decent, and then you take the MCAT, which is the entrance exam, and I did also very, very mediocre, not so fantastic. And I got essentially rejected from almost every school I applied to, except one. And that one offered me an interview solely based on the fact that at the time, I had created and was making a comic book about a diabetic superhero. <laughs> very nerdy, super so nerdy. nerdy. I love it. Oh, it's the nerdiest. Oh my God. So based on that, they said, oh, you clearly you have a passion. You have a background like let this guy in. Let's see what we can do. I, I think that was part of it. I think the, the admissions dean said your numbers are a touch low, but they're not horrible. But you seem to have something that, you know, sets you apart. Let's give you an interview. Mm -hmm. And I was very, very fortunate, you know, but it also did stoke a lot of the imposter syndrome. Like, oh, I kind of got in through this back door. I remember sitting in my interview day, you know, there's this big board table. Everyone's in their suit. I've already sweat through my shirt and my suit at this point. <laughs> and everyone goes around to say what med school or what undergrad they're from. And, you know, I'm sitting next to some kid from Harvard and someone from Princeton and Yale. And they ask what they did the summer before they, you know, they came there. And a lot of them would say, oh, you know, I was, you know, curing AIDS in Africa and I was uh, curing cancer in this lab. Oh, I created a comic book. You know, I was like, what am I doing here? <laughs> but clearly you need passion. You need drive in order to get through medical school. You do. You do. What I found is that you don't have to be crazy brilliant. You have to be very motivated because it just takes time. The volume of information is very vast, but the depth of the the intellectual difficulty is not like the rigor is not that bad. It's just taking the time to kind of comprehend the concepts. Mm -hmm. And I found that using art actually helped me to do so. Right. Because I found you because you have all these medical illustrations where you were drawing comics to remember certain medical concepts. Yeah. Are those being used as study guides for a lot of people? So that's the hope. I mean, so I put a lot of that stuff on social media and um, initially it was very didactic in nature. It'd be stuff to kind of help me remember medical concepts for tests and exams and so on. And that seems to help a lot of other medical students. But as I've kind of evolved into being a resident and a lot of the emotional struggles I've kind of utilized and kind of poked fun at with some humor. So kind of all those things, I think, hopefully are offering some solace and some help for other people going through the, the journey. So his Instagram handle, by the by, is Mike.Natter, and he has all kinds of illustrations and comics based on his life as a doctor. It's hella sweet. Okay, speaking of which, yes, that was sugar-related. So let's talk a little bit about blood sugar. I have a very overactive pancreas, overachiever, <laughs> workaholic pancreas. So I have reactive hyperinsulinemia, postprandial 
Got okay. it. Oh, look at you with the I know. big, big words. I know. I've read them off of a lab report, and then I've ignored the advice the doctors have given me. I have a bad system going on, but explain kind of what blood sugar is and what the pancreas does and why that's important. Absolutely. Okay. So, um, let's start with the pancreas. The pancreas is freaking awesome. Okay. It is the coolest. Okay. So, I mean, clearly I'm a little biased, but it... <laughs> In, you always want what you can. <laughs> it wears two hats in general. Okay. It wears an exocrine hat and an endocrine hat. Okay. The bulk of the pancreas is made up like more or less like 90% of the cells are like acinar cells and they make exocrine um, enzymes to help you digest food. Things like trypsin and lipase and stuff and helps you break down fats and carbs and all this stuff. Um, so that's kind of one hat and that's the bulk of what it does. Then... A handful of cells are in these little islands called the islets of Langerhans, and there's alpha cells and beta cells and delta cells and all these cells, and they make hormones. Mm -hmm. And the beta cells, in particular, are making insulin. Okay, so put that on the shelf. Allie, what did you have for lunch today? Oh, God. Y'all, okay, here's the deal. I have great days where I feed my microbiome a literal shitload of veggies, and then sometimes I'm just the worst and I'm traveling and I'll just have like hotel coffee for breakfast and some airport Cheetos and then I'll try to consume a packet of peanut butter with a Q-tip as a spoon. I'm not proud of this. <laughs> I know that I have reactive hypoglycemia. I find that I will get to bed, um, you know, with my contacts out, lights out mm -hmm. when I have a low carb diet and I tend not to do it because I just don't want to seem fussy, okay. which is a horrible reason to get diabetes. Oh, on a normal day, yeah. it's a it's a, I'm a dumpster fire. On a normal day, I would have like an almond milk latte that probably had sugar in the milk. And okay. then I'd add a little bit more mm. raw sugar. Sure, sure. Because I like to crunch it. And then, <laughs> and then I would probably eat like some sort of pastry okay. at like 1 p.m. for breakfast. I love it. Okay. So that pastry, which sounds delicious, mm -hmm. um, is made up primarily of carbohydrate. Mm -hmm. So that carbohydrate, it initially starts breaking down in your mouth mm -hmm. with some mechanical digestion with your teeth. But there's also a little bit of chemical with the salivary amylase, right? So you're breaking this carbohydrate, which is a complex macromolecule down. It eventually goes down the food tube, the esophagus, into the stomach, and then into the small intestine where more of that digestion is taking place. Once those enzymes really break down that carb, it finally gets small enough into a form called glucose. Mm -hmm. The glucose can then get in through these little finger-like projections that are absorbing all of that goodness from your food into your bloodstream. Mm -hmm. Bloodstream is kind of like the subway system. Mm -hmm. It just like transports all the shit to all the things that needs to go. Mm -hmm. you, know, you know what I'm talking about? So uh, where does it need to go essentially is it needs to go to the trillions of cells that make up your body. Mm -hmm. And once the, that glucose can get into those trillions of cells, the cells can then break that glucose down into ATP and energy and do what those cells need to do, whatever that may be. Oh, wow. The problem, or not the problem, my problem, but uh, yours is not a problem, but the problem is that the cells, um, particularly the adipose tissue, which is the fat, and the skeletal muscle have locks on the doors of their cells. And so for that sugar to, or that glucose to get into those cells, something needs to unlock that. And that's insulin. So insulin's kind of like a key. This is a very oversimplified metaphor, but I think it works well for people who don't necessarily have a background in science or, or in medicine. Mm -hmm. And so this is the way in which your pancreas says, I'm going to dip my toe into that stream of blood, mm -hmm. taste it and say, oh, it's a little bit sweet. Let's pump out some, some insulin in the right proportion to allow that glucose to get into the cells. You wanna maintain some glucose in the blood at all times. For whatever reason, Dr. Ward, mm -hmm. 
Once again, not a doctor. Your pancreas gets very excited. And so when you eat something with carb, and if you don't have anything with fiber, fat, and protein to kind of help that carb, uh, to, yeah, to help that carb get kind of slowly digested, then your pancreas sees that sugar and, and it's a spike and it goes, oh my God. And it just pisses out all of this insulin into the blood. What an asshole. It's such an asshole. It just kind of like sque- like a sponge just squeezes it in there. Mm-hmm. And then postprandially, which means like maybe like two to four hours after you eat, you'll notice that there's still insulin hanging around so that too much of that sugar gets out of your bloodstream and into your cells. And what does that feel like? What do you feel like when you have that? I feel like it makes mono seem like I've had a Red Bull. Like <laughs> I feel so tired. My, my limbs feel like lead. And it just feels like the energy that would be needed to take out my contacts is massive. That I just have to fall asleep. Sometimes wearing shoes. I have fallen asleep with my car in the driveway. Oh I've fallen God. asleep on the bathroom floor. So this is it's dangerous. It's oh, dangerous. Yeah, no. I know. So driving. That's, that's, like, that's one way that someone might experience hypoglycemia, also known as low blood sugar. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's miserable. Okay, quick aside. While researching this, I came across a 2016 paper called Generalized Anxiety Disorder and Hypoglycemia, Symptoms Improved with Diet Modification. One passage read, quote, increasing odds of depression and anxiety have been associated with the consumption of foods that have a progressively higher glycemic index are more sugary, and spike your blood sugar faster. So doctors and lay folks alike know too much sugar can lead to like sadness and irritability and mood swings. So much so that after the assassination of Harvey Milk, the defense attorneys cited his murderer's love of Coke and Hostess. And this is now known as the Twinkie defense. It did not work. But perhaps we need a neuropsychobiology episode. Anyone? Yes? Also, at this point in the interview, a fluffy indoor raccoon interrupted, and my dog Grammy was a great way to deflect from my bad pancreas and hypoglycemia or low blood sugar to his. Where did she get that? Oh, from over there. Okay, she brought me a treat. Yeah. I know my blood sugar's fine right now. <laughs> she tensed it. She's like, Shelby, drink your juice. <laughs> did you ever see Steel Magnolias? Of course. <laughs> Julie Roberts in the hairdresser. <laughs> Has that ever happened to you? Has anyone been Shelby, drink your juice? Shelby. Shelby, you need some juice. You need some juice. Stop it, Mama. Drink the juice. Excuse me, should I call the doctor or something? No, no. She's a diabetic. She just has a little too much insulin, that's all. We just get a little more in it, she'll be all right. I mean, when I have hypoglycemia, which unfortunately happens here and here and there, um, so my symptoms are a little bit different than yours. I don't get the exhaustion as much as I get this kind of cold sweats, weak in the knees, like, oh man, I'm going to pass the hell out mm-hmm. kind of tunnel vision, just feeling like just true death. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get these like weird cravings, like anything and everything looks delicious and you just like shovel it into your mouth. Like I would imagine being pregnant feels like, like, <laughs> like peanut butter and ice cream and pizza all at once. And then like you immediately feel ill afterward. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's, that's essentially, that's my hypoglycemia. And so now a type one diabetic has to monitor their blood glucose and then inject or have a pump for insulin because your pancreas is checked out, right? That's exactly right. So you're, you're worried about high blood sugar, which means you don't have enough insulin. You're also worried about low blood sugar, which means maybe you took too much insulin or 
blood sugar can also be lowered by exercise. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of factors. Blood sugar can be high, uh, elevated by times of stress. I'm so stressed out. How is How does that happen? It's a good question. So the thought is that there are a lot of stress hormones, uh, particularly things like cortisol and epinephrine, um, that when secreted into your bloodstream are, this is a good one, gluconeogenic. Oh, let's say it again. Gluconeogenic. Gluconeogenic. <laughs> Let's break it down. So like glucose, sugar, mm-hmm. neo, like 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 the beginning of, in Genesis, like the, the beginning of as well. So like you're basically making new sugar and, and breaking things down of storage. Um, so things in the liver, our bodies are super smart. And so they'll store things um, into forms of glycogen. So mm-hmm. glycogen is a storage form of sugar, mostly in the liver. And so it'll kind of basically poop out all of that extra sugar because your body's like, oh, if I or flight. We, we need this energy immediately. Let's mm-hmm. get this out there. So the type of diabetes Dr. Netter has is the more rare form, type 1, which is typically, but not always, diagnosed in childhood. And Mike found out that he had it one late September day in 1994. And also weird, type 1 may be related to colder weather. So it tends to be more prevalent in chillier climates, and it's diagnosed more often during winter months, which is just cold, man. That is kind of type one. Now, does that happen with an autoimmune problem? Does your immune system attack your pancreas? That's exactly right. So, I mean, that's the theory. Most of the time, it's thought to be autoimmune related. And autoimmune means auto meaning self and immune meaning your immune system. And I think of the immune system kind of like this little army of dudes. Mm -hmm. And they have these little um, like spears. And at the end of the spear is this little Y, this little prong. Um, And at the end of those prongs are very specific shapes. So our immune system is kind of dumb. Like you, you have like all these pre-made antibodies, which is what these spears are. And they're like every, as many combinations as they can in case they encounter an invader that looks like one of them so they can clip it and so on. But then you also have memory of that. And so you can pump out more. So the theory is something called molecular mimicry. Mm -hmm. And it's a very clever theory. And it basically states that um, you have both a genetic and an environmental um, kind of uh, dual trigger. So you have a genetic propensity to having some sort of autoimmune disease. It's not well understood, but you have some predilection for autoimmunity. And then in the environment, you come into contact with some common virus. So I think Coxsackie B virus is thought to be one of the leading molecular mimicry theories for type 1 diabetes. Really? So you may have come upon a virus that you got and that is what triggered your immune system to so that's, go ham on your pancreas. That's the thought. And the, the idea is that the epitope or like the small piece of a virus that gets kind of clicked into your antibody looks similar to that of the beta cells of the pancreas. That's the theory. Mm. And then you have all these antibodies that are going ham and chomping down on them pancreatic tissues. Coxsackie, pardon? Ah, yes. This is a group of viruses named for the Hudson Bay hamlet of Coxsackie, New York. And if you've ever had hand, foot, and mouth disease, congrats! You've been a bearer of one type of Coxsackie. And also, Coxsackie is just, it's a small town. It's about 100 miles upstate from Manhattan. And its name, Coxsackie, means owl hoot. And you can buy a three-bedroom log cabin there for just over 100 grand. And then tell your house guests, yes. This is where some viruses were first isolated in 1948 via fecal samples. Let's move on from number two to type two, shall we? Well, what happens with type two diabetes? And why don't they just call it a different name? Is type two enough of a uh, distinction? Or do you think that that confuses people? It's a really good point. So 
if you look at the numbers, the overall, like by by a huge amount, type two is much more prevalent. Okay. Type one makes up a very small uh, amount. I think it's something like like three hundred thousand in the United States, something like that, something tiny. Uh, type two is significantly more than e- if you uh, count pre-diabetics who are pre-type two. That's also just like a mammoth amount. It's a it's a massive problem in our country. What is pre-diabetic? Yeah, well, let's so let's back up. So okay. so type two that was a really good point. Like, is there a big? It should be a different name, and it used to be called adult onset. And type one used to be called juvenile, um, but they had to change that because for many reasons. One, you're starting to see people who are adults with type one getting diagnosed as an adult, and then you're starting to see younger people, including kids, with type two, which is a problem. So unlike being able to use TikTok or wearing only polo shirts, type two is not an age thing. But Dr. Natter says, the end result is similar. They both result in high blood sugar or hyperglycemia, but for very, very different reasons and for very different mechanisms. Type 1 is never, ever an issue of uh, someone having a uh, lifestyle choice that might have predisposed them. It's never that. Mm-hmm. Type 2 is often secondary to some lifestyle choices. That being said, there's genetic components to both. And I want to also preface that um, they tell us in med school that 50% of what you learn in med school after you graduate is proven wrong and different. Oh, wow. <laughs> so. Okay, side note. I checked this out. And yes, type 2 has a stronger connection to family history than type 1. So much so that they have crunched the numbers on twins and found that, yep, twins are more likely to share underpants and all of their birthday parties ever and also a diabetes diagnosis. So why does type two happen? This may have changed, but my understanding was that there's actually a higher uh, genetic component to type two than there is to type one. Oh, wow. And does that happen where you kind of exhaust your pancreas? And so uh, it has put out so much insulin over so much time that it just one day is like, fuck all y'all, I'm out. I think there's a component of that. It's actually a really exciting time in research very, very recently. Most people think, oh, you ate too much crap. You know, you ate too much carbs and sugar. Mm -hmm. But what we're finding more and more is that it's actually the animal products and the fat that we're eating, specifically the long chain fatty acids and the saturated fats. And what's happening is there's fat deposition. So fat is kind of accumulating in things like the liver, your skeletal muscle, and the pancreas. And that is spawning a storm of like pro-inflammatory cytokines. Mm -hmm. So you're getting a lot of inflammation. That inflammation is really detrimental. You're getting like free radicals and oxidation and all stuff. And that's really gunking up the works of the insulin receptors. So initially it's an, an issue of insulin Um, insensitivity. The lock is broken. The key is there. And so very early on in type 2, you actually see a hyperinsulin state because your pancreas is saying, oh shit, my insulin I'm secreting isn't doing anything. Let's pump out extra. It's falling on deaf ears. And so for that reason, eventually you'll have some of that. And uh, like you said, the pancreas pooping out, but then there's also some thought that this is also secondary to the fat deposition and and inflammation in the pancreas as well. If you're silently analyzing your diets right now, you are not alone, my friend. You know, the question of like, you know, should I eat paleo, should I eat keto, should I eat plant-based? Plant-based diets have evidence that suggests that they help treat and prevent certain disease processes like type 2 diabetes. And I do think that that is a very healthy way to go. There's good data for other diets that are out there. But the only one that I know that I've seen with empirical data behind it that seems very good is the plant-based diet. Yeah, I love plants. Really? That's so fascinating. And so if you are 
say pre-diabetic, what exactly does that mean? And what can you do? Like, can you turn this boat around? If you have type two diabetes, can you turn the cruise ship around? Like, what are we talking here? <laughs> what kind of U-turns? With a huge buffet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's flip this bitch. What can you do? Um, okay, so... Yeah, so let's first get into the definition. So in in medicine, we like objective numbers. We like data. So we use something called hemoglobin A1C. Hemoglobin A1C refers to, if you look at your blood, your blood is made up of cells and plasma. Mm -hmm. And some of those cells are red blood cells. They're just kind of hanging out. They have the carrying some oxygen. They got some iron in there doing their thing. Sugar is sticky. And so sugar ends up sticking to these suckers. Mm And your blood turns over every 90 days. Every three months, your marrow is like, yep, here's some new blood. Mm-hmm. So if I were to take a sample of your blood every three months or every 90 days, and I took a look at how much sugar is stuck on those red cells, I'm going to get a sense of what your average blood sugar is over those three months oh, wow. by looking at that. So a normal hemoglobin A1C is somewhere between 4 and like 5%. Okay. A pre-diabetic is classified as, as anywhere between 5.7 and 6.4%. Mm-hmm. And then if you have 6.5 or above, you are classified as diabetic. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And so if someone hears they're pre-diabetic or they just got diagnosed as type 2, what should they do? Like, what is like an emergency tool bag? Like, oh, here we go. <laughs> I mean, I think I think the thing that... We have to understand, especially as medical professionals, is that it's such a multi-pronged issue. Mm -hmm. And just that physician alone in in that 10-minute visit saying, like, you need to lose weight is not going to cut it. There's so much to it. There's culture. There's um, access. There's availability. There's cost of food and food deserts. There's a lot to talk about. Mm -hmm. Well, part of the reason I want to go into taking care of folks with diabetes is because I get it. It's so difficult. Mm-hmm. It is life altering. You have to think about it constantly and it's never going away. And so for that reason, I think having that connection and that empathy with the patient is first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Um, but usually, prototypically, type 2 diabetics and pre-diabetics can spare some pounds. So losing weight is key. Mm-hmm. Exercising is really important because exercising itself, in and of itself, even without the weight loss, mm-hmm. is gonna help resensitize to insulin. And then losing weight with using things like a plant-based diet and cutting out a lot of the carbs and a lot of the refined sugars and stuff, as well as staying away from some of those saturated fats, is going to help significantly lower A1C and get people back on track. So people with diabetes type 1 and 2 come in all shapes and sizes. I know beanpoles and even someone who's a world-renowned boxing coach who has diabetes in great shape. But doctors agree that higher body fat in some patients can be one aggravator and part of the environmental factors. So why does lowering body fat seem to help some patients? So it's still not really well understood. So the more recent studies, like I said, are are looking at the um, fat deposition on our organs itself. And so the excess fat that we carry around our waist and so on is kind of a external marker of some um, visceral fat. Interestingly, if you carry your fat like in your thighs or your butt, it's like considered um, more healthy than if you were going to carry it in your your belly. That spare tire is Mm -hmm. particularly bad. But I I think there's also this idea of something called lipotoxicity. And so just having fat in and of itself is very inflammatory and having inflammation kind of cascades all of these biomarkers in our body to go haywire and kind of gunk up the normal mechanisms and therefore making you less sensitive to the insulin. Are we learning more and more about inflammation? Are we starting to realize like, oh, inflammation, 
you're really awful. We forgot to look into you before. It's all about balance mm -hmm. because inflammation can be good. Mm. If we get sick, inflammation is going to bring all of the, the characters of our immune system to where it needs to be and do a really good job. Mm -hmm. A fever in and of itself is actually potentially a good thing. Mm -hmm. But then if the fever continues after the infection has been quarantined, after you're feeling better, you're going to cause damage. And so it's all about finding that balance. Okay. Do we have maybe more inflammation than we need these days? Do we have more factors that are contributing to in increased inflammation? Absolutely. Okay. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of it is diet, mm. smoking, drinking, all of the vices that, you know, I, I wish I could sound more sexy and say, like, you have to stay away from this one thing. And, yeah. But it's, it's everything we already kind of know, but we're just learning more and more about how bad some of it really is. And what do you use to manage your diabetes? You're a robot, right? Like you're a cyborg. <laughs> That's correct. I, <laughs> I have, so I have an insulin pump mm -hmm. and I have something called a CGM. Mm -hmm. And my CGM, it stands for continuous glucose monitor. Mm -hmm. um, and my insulin pump basically has a reservoir of insulin that I change out every four to five days. And it automatically will pump in what's called the basal rate into me through a subcutaneous little cannula. So side note, a subcutaneous cannula is just fancy talk for a tiny hose that goes under your skin. Mm -hmm. um, and then every time I have something to eat that has carbohydrates, I have an estimation of how many carbs that is. I have an insulin to carb ratio, plug that guy into my pump and I get a bolus of insulin to hopefully cover that meal. Mm -hmm. And who is a good candidate for that? Because that seems way better than poking your finger and and poking yourself with a needle. Right. No, it, it does. I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't. So it's interesting. A lot of type ones prefer to not have the pump. So. You have to be attached to it all the time. Yeah. It's kind of annoying. You know, the, the the main question you get asked is, you know, like, what do you do when you're having sex? You know? Oh, yeah. You got this thing dingle dangling off of you? <laughs> like a mic pack or something? Exactly. Well, <laughs> just yeah, like, what do you do? Just kind of floating by the side. I mean, you haven't ever had sex before, but when we I don't day, do those things. I'm not, <laughs> Allie, I'm not an animal. <laughs> I feel like this is a good plug for your sexology episode. <laughs> yeah. But what does a person with type 1 diabetes do about... Yeah. Being an android. I mean, when I was first diagnosed, a lot of these technology didn't exist. So I would use syringes and yeah. I would. And so the technology has come to be so that the disease can be very well managed and, and hopefully kind of fall into the background a little bit. And the pump allows a lot more of that. And so now we have this what's called a closed loop system. Mm -hmm. So my continuous mo glucose monitor, which I have on my arm, it sits in the what's called the interstitial space and it's detecting this kind of flux of glucose across cells. Why is that so amazing is because it's giving me a sense of the direction of where my blood sugar is heading before it gets there. Mm. So if I'm on my way down or on my way up, I can kind of take care of that before it actually hits. And my pump has now the ability to say, oh, you're going up. I'm going to give you a little more insulin without me having to do anything, which is like phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. Who is not a good candidate for a pump? So, is it really expensive too? It is. It's, it's crazy expensive. So thankfully I have insurance, but I think about this often as well as more recently with the, you know, the um, crazy skyrocketing price yeah. of insulin. It's ridiculous. It's the, what is causing an in, this insulin surge? What's the deal? Whoo boy. Oh boy, howdy. We're going to get to the cost of insulin in next week's part two, but you can start right now just practicing screaming with rage if you like. Okay. But at this moment, back to the pump. Oh my God. So many things. So, um, so just real quick with the pump. So who's a good candidate for the pump? So if you're type one, um, 
you know, you have to demonstrate that you have, you, you still, the pump is not autopilot. You still need to be cognizant of how to take care of yourself and how to troubleshoot. And it's also a machine which can have, you know, its own issues, which I've dealt with as well. And so if you've proven to your, your endocrinologist or your diabetologist that you have a good sense of your disease, you know how to handle it and you know what to do in case of emergencies and troubleshoot, and you really want to try and fine tune, then that would be a good thing for you. A CGM, on the other hand, I think every diabetic should have. Prior to CGM, it kind of feels like you're flying an airplane with a blindfold on. You test your blood sugar and that's one point in time. You don't know if that's 100 and it's going up or going down. You have no idea. So the only way to kind of combat that is you test your blood sugar 12 times a day and connect the dots, which is a pain in the ass. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It sucks. Does it hurt to prick your finger? No. I, I mean, I don't think so. I think anything that you do every day for X amount of years, like you just kind of adapt to. But even when I first was diagnosed, pricking your finger is like nothing. It's a walk in the park. Yeah. What advice would you give someone who's just been diagnosed? Ooh, that's a good question. <sighs> I think it's important to recognize that it sucks. I think, you know, you know, oftentimes when like bad stuff happens to people and people who have experience with it are like, oh, it's not that bad or whatever. I think it's okay to kind of get down on their level and be like, you know, this sucks. Mm -hmm. But just because it sucks doesn't mean that your life is over and doesn't mean that you need to alter everything in your life. It means that you're going to have to make some changes and you're going to have to adapt, but it's adaptable and it's doable. So it's adaptable and it's doable, especially with all the diabetologists and charities working to further outreach and research. And for each episode, we donate to a cause of the ologist's choosing. And for part one of Diabetology, Dr. Natter chose an organization called Beyond Type 1. And Beyond Type 1 is uniting the global diabetes community and providing solutions to improve lives today. It was founded in 2015, and they focus on education, advocacy, and the path to a cure. And their site is awesome. It has everything from equipment information to diet info to dads, aka diabetic alert dogs. And it was a great resource as I was researching this episode. And it has wonderful links for patients and for newly diagnosed folks. So that's beyond type one with a numeral one dot org. So that donation was made possible by sponsors of the show, which you may hear about now. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So is my brain. Here's a thought experiment. Think of all the time that you spend just scrolling on things or not doing the things you want to do. I know, time is the most valuable thing that you have. Oh boy, let me tell you I had to learn this over time. You know what helped? Therapy. Therapy can help you figure out what matters most to you and how to prioritize it so that you like your life more. And where I learned that was better help. Because yes, I have been a client. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, I know how hard it is to get started. BetterHelp makes it very easy. It's entirely online. It's convenient. It's flexible. You take a quick questionnaire. They match you with a therapist. Instead of just Googling and trying to find someone with an opening, BetterHelp makes it very accessible. And I like that. It's also more affordable than traditional therapy. And you can chat. You can text. You can do video calls. You can do phone calls. For some reason, you are not vibing with your therapist. You can switch at any time. No extra cost. No drama. So let me tell you. Time is precious. Figure out where you want to spend yours. And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash ologies today to get 10% off your first month. So that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ologies. It's about time. 
KiwiCo. You know I love KiwiCo because making stuff and learning while you do it, the best way. And KiwiCo is great. They deliver seriously fun learning for kids of all ages. They have these hands-on projects and activities and each month kids receive crates that are engaging and that introduce them to things like science and technology or concepts and art. And I love that all the things you need are in there so you're not going to be running out to the store to get pipe cleaners. You're not going to run out of glue or something. And KiwiCo tests these crates with professionals and with kids to make make them the best they can be. There's so many different projects depending on what your kiddo's interested in, what age or grade level they're at. You can discover the science of magic. You can engineer a domino machine. These make great gifts. I have given these to so many kids. And I also like that there's no commitment so you can pause or cancel crates anytime. So redefine learning with play. You can explore projects that build confidence and problem-solving skills with KiwiCo. Get 50% off your first month on any crate line at kiwico.com with a promo code ologies. So that's 50% off your first month at kiwico.com promo code ologies. They're going to love it. Okay, here's how I like my clothes. I like them classic. I like them well-made. I like them comfortable and I like them ethical, which is why I flipped when I first heard about Quince. So Quince partners directly with these top factories. So they cut out the cost of the middleman and then they pass the savings onto obviously you. They have these 100% Mongolian cashmere sweaters that start at 50 bucks. They have organic cotton sweaters. They have washable silk tops. They even have 14 karat jewelry in case you are looking for a present maybe for yourself. So Quince items are priced like 50 to 80% less than similar brands. But Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. And I like that their styles are well-made, well-cut, but also classic. I did not own a cashmere sweater before Quince. That was the kind of thing that I would splurge for for other people, but not myself. But I was like, you know what, Quince? I think I shall. So indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash ologies for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash ologies. You look amazing. How you doing on that D, that vitamin D? Could be better. I feel you. Some of us are coming out of a winter. I don't know how much outside time you get. I don't know how your vitamin D is dietarily, but I know a lot of people, including myself, especially women over 18, 97% of us not getting enough vitamin D from our diet. Ritual's like, how about I help you? They're a clinically backed multivitamin. So skeptics, here's a multivitamin that's like, yeah, we use science to formulate this. I think you're gonna like it. Ritual multivitamins are vegan. They're gluten and major allergen free. I also like that Ritual is a female founded B Corp. So they're doing good for the health of people and the planet. Ritual multivitamins are also gentle on an empty stomach. I like that when I open mine, they have kind of a minty essence. I've got Ritual vitamins in my belly right now, to be honest, I take them every day. They have kind of a lava lamp look with oil and beads inside. I also have their melatonin caps at night when I need to go bye-bye Z's. So no more shady business. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. And get 20% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash ologies. So start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. So that's ritual.com slash ologies for 20% off. Okay, so where were we? Yes, okay. We were talking about cyborg pancreases. Do you think we're going to get pan- like robo-internal pancreases, or is it too many moving parts? I think that there's two flavors of cure. There is, I think if we can get stem cells, the concern would be if, if it was an autoimmune process that killed off your own cells, then putting your own cells back in will also have the same issue. So I think if we could somehow like hermetically seal them in like a Trojan horse, mm-hmm. 
and then we can implant them in like the omentum or the liver. Those beta cells will then kind of act as their own free roaming, you know, endocrine pancreas. And I think that would be a potential cure. The other way would be a mechanical cure, which I think we're very close to doing. And you have kind of a mechanical pancreas. It's just external. That's exactly right. And I think that the mechanical cure will be an external one. But the thing that we didn't really dive into too much is that there's a gas pedal and there's a brake. The gas pedal is insulin. Insulin is going to drop your blood sugar down. Mm -hmm. But I right now don't have a brake. And the brake that our body has physiologically is something called glucagon. Oh, so I mentioned that there is the beta cells for insulin, but the alpha cells make glucagon. So it's another hormone. Mm -hmm. And that hormone, just to put very simply, basically goes over to the liver, knocks on the door, says, hey, liver, let's get some sugar. Uh -huh. And so it breaks on the glycogen and pours out some sugar. Mm -hmm. So it kind of is the yin to the yang kind of deal. So a pump that has a dual chamber with some glucagon and some insulin and the closed loop system with the CGM would essentially be that system. And remember, CGM stands for Continuous Glucose Monitor. I got you. And can a CGM be a CGGM, like glucose and glucagon monitor? Ooh. Can it be like a, can it monitor both glucagon and, and glucose? So glucose would be the piece that you want to measure because both glucagon and insulin are what's going to be affecting the glucose. Oh, got it. Oh, so then it would be more the pump that had two uh nozzles that not that's exactly right <laughs> okay it'd be a double nozzle <laughs> oh my god wait a minute there's two sets of nozzles are there any good movies or tv shows about diabetes oh are there good movies um and shelby drinker juice <laughs> i'm trying to think of other diabetics what's another diabetic seen? oh there was so my sister who's a bit older than me used to be a big babysitters fan okay. babysitters club oh my god claudia no claudia uh i i don't know of course, I looked this up. And the Babysitter's Club character with type 1 diabetes was named... You ready for this? Stacy McGill. So congratulations if you've been in your car alone screaming, It was Stacy! It was Stacy! Come on, word! Okay, Stacy. Yes, sorry. There was an episode that my sister made me watch with her because there was a diabetic and she... It was like a Christmas episode. Okay. And she's eating all them cookies. <gasps> and then she goes into... Oh, this is such a good segue. Then she goes into something called DKA. Okay. Should we should we dive? Yeah. Or we're taking a dive. Oh my god. Something ketoacidosis. Oh, boom. Boom. Right. Crushing it. What the D? I mean, we're talking about it. Ooh, diabetic ketoacidosis. <laughs> You're brilliant. Okay. So you are a doctor, Doctor Ward. I pretty much. Am. <laughs> Just all I need is a lab coat and a really good insurance policy. Like <laughs> the best mouth practice, and I'm ready to go. And you're golden. So what is diabetic ketoacidosis? So this is what I was in when I was diagnosed, and often this is what happens with type 1s. If you have type 1 diabetes, you have no insulin in your system. With no insulin in your system, like we spoke about before, all that sugar, all that glucose can't get out of your bloodstream, and it can't get into your cells. Your cells are dying in a sea of plenty. They're like, yo, where's all that delicious, sweet, sweet sugar? Oh, no, and it's all around them. It's all around them. It sucks. And so what does that do to your tissue so your tissue is like yo we need to get some energy now mm -hmm. so they go to alternate forms of energy and that's breaking down your adipose or your fat tissue and sometimes your muscle as well when you break down fat tissue it's called beta oxidation mm -hmm. and you can get some energy from that you actually get things called ketones uh, which can be used as sources of energy and the major ketones you get are things like beta hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate and acetone those and um, so your brain can actually use like neurons can and your heart can use ketones for energy and so on 
But the problem with ketones is that if there's absolutely no insulin around, then these ketone bodies build up in the blood and they're super acidic. And your blood is super finicky and it wants to remain very, very, very neutral, like 7.3, 7.4 pH. Mm-hmm. So your pH starts to drop like precipitously and you become acidemic and then acidotic and then you get very sick, coma, brain swelling, death kind of kind of oh deal. My God. That's so DKA, yeah. Why does that not happen on the keto diet? So on the keto diet, you go into something called ketosis. Mm -hmm. So you're getting more ketones and you're kind of shunting that as your fuel source, but you still have insulin around in your body. And so those ketone bodies don't build up to the point where they're dropping your blood pH. Mm -hmm. Okay. So on the keto diet, can you survive without glucose in your blood and glycogen in your liver and your muscles? You need some glucose, um, but you're getting some glucose. Like, I think it's almost impossible to eat a diet that has like zero, zero glucose. Like plants and stuff have a little bit of glucose Mm -hmm. and stuff. You can. Your your body is able to kind of shunt to different sources and so on. But um, I I really don't think it's the best way to go. I think it does help with epilepsy to some degree. The mechanism, I don't think is that well understood, but it has to do with the idea of neurons utilizing ketones instead of glucose as their source. And so it does something with the... Um, excitability of the cells. And so if you don't have insulin deficiencies, the keto diet won't throw you into ketoacidosis like it would someone with diabetes. And in terms of using the keto diet to control blood sugar, some folks with type 2 say it's allowed them to manage their glucose levels and use less insulin. Of course, do not use this episode to diagnose or treat a disease. Consult your doctor before making any changes. Do not sue us. How do you think we can change our culture at large to avoid so many people getting type two diabetes. Like obviously there's a lot of things a person can do individually to take responsibility for it and try to look out for themselves. But in terms of an epidemic, what should people be doing at a higher level? I, I think that's a really good question. It's a really important question because it's really turning into such an issue. I think it has to be a multi pronged approach. I think we have to change culture which is a very difficult thing to do. And I think the idea of changing culture is really centered around food. Yeah. I think food is, is, is a huge driving source. And I think we need to make healthy food options more accessible. I think, you know, if you, if you think about a, you know, a single mom raising four kids, it's probably really easy and affordable to go to McDonald's yeah. and feed everyone. We also, in our culture, American culture, you know, if you eat dinner, it's expected that your dinner is going to be, you know, filled with a lot of meats and carbs and sugars and our portion sizes are crazy. And so I think that's huge. I think having access to healthcare is important. I think those two things in and of themselves would make a huge difference. And then outside of that, I think we need to be more active. I think we need to exercise. How does a person stay active when they are doing something really hard, like raising a lot of kids or going to medical school or asking people about lizard dicks (laughs) for too many hours a week. How do we prioritize exercise? I know I can fit it in my schedule. I know I can Tetris it in there. And I'm so bad at it lately. It's hard. I mean, you know, I, I'm going to be a hypocrite because like I, you know, I'm a resident and like my schedule is, is awful. I mean, yeah. I wish I could talk about lizard dicks. <laughs> you need more lizards in your I clinic. I just need more. Yeah. <laughs> I think the idea wow. is being active and, and exercising doesn't mean you have to like carve out an hour and go to the gym. Mm-hmm. You can take the stairs instead of the elevator. You can park your car a little farther in the parking lot. Mm-hmm. You know, you can take two stairs at a time instead of one step. Even, I mean, if you get 15, 20 minutes a day of doing something like that, yeah. that counts and that makes a difference. Mm-hmm. It adds up. 
do you ever advise patients to get a Fitbit or get a step tracker and just try to hit a goal? Yes. Usually what happens is they'll get it and they're very excited up front and then it kind of peters out toward the end. Mm -hmm. But it is nice to have uh, objective data. And then what I'll try and do is I'll bring them back. So I'll say, you know, instead of seeing me in six months, come back in a month. Okay. Let's see how many steps you did. Let's see how many pounds you lost. Yeah. And then you kind of work with them and you kind of keep them honest. It's helpful. How do you as a doctor approach something like you know, physical fitness and things like that without making it into like an emotionally shaming issue. You know what I mean? Because it's so hard to feel good about your body in a culture that celebrates like emaciated Instagram models. <laughs> That's correct. And so we're fed these two really different messages about we should be stick thin and also you should feel good about your body at any size. It's a little confusing. It's difficult. You're absolutely right. And I think from a from a, a clinical or, or a physician point of view, when someone has disease or they're developing disease, that it should be the motivating factor. It's not about you don't look good. It's about I want you to lose this weight because I'm worried about your diabetes and your metabolic syndrome and your, you know, your blood pressure and losing weight doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to, you know, I don't want someone to necessarily like look different. I want them to feel better. Mm -hmm. And so I think as if you package it like that and say it's about your health and, you know, it's not necessarily about the, the, the physique. Um, I think that's important. How do you as a doctor and also a patient motivate yourself to do the things you know are good for you? I struggle, Ellie. Yeah. I, I really do. I, um, the things that I can control, I control. So I, I try really hard to be careful about what I eat. But I also think it's important that, you know, I believe in moderation. I think it's important that if you like ice cream, if you like French fries, you shouldn't deprive yourself of them all the time. I think it's okay being a diabetic or being, you know, hypertensive or overweight or whatever, to once in a while indulge yourself. And I think How that's once in a while. That's the, that's the, you know, that's the balance, right? That's the balance. I like, for instance, I try not to eat any red meat. But I'll have red meat maybe once a month, once every two months. That's not evidence-based. I don't, I just made it up. I just said, well, you know, and what I do is when I'm at the restaurant, when I'm out, you know, with my friends or whatever, and, you know, everyone's ordering steaks, I think back, okay, when was the last time I had a steak? When was the last time I had red meat? And if it was recently, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go for the salad. But I try to eat in the morning. I try to eat eggs, um, some like avocado, something with like a lot of uh, protein and some fat to kind of keep me going. Maybe I'll have like a Greek yogurt and some berries. Berries tend to be okay in terms of glycemic index for diabetics. Other fruits are a little bit more tricky. Um, and then, um, and a coffee, lots of coffee, numerous amounts of copious coffee. And then for lunch, I'll have a salad usually if possible. And then maybe I'll have some fruit, like, um, maybe an apple or something for a snack, a handful of almonds, something like that. Another two or three coffees. So what do you eat for dinner? Oh my God, for dinner. What do I eat for dinner? Yeah. So like, um, I eat, I eat a good amount of sushi. Um, sometimes I'll have like some like grilled chicken and salad or like quinoa, uh, sweet potato, that kind of stuff. Yeah, okay. I try. Have you ever done like a straight up diet, like a Whole30 or South Beach or have you ever, you're like, no. No, it's, it's just like, I don't think diets, like those types of diets, I don't think that they work because I don't think they're sustainable. And I think the best kind of diet is a diet that allows some moderation so a diet doesn't work but uh but it's like a like a fad fun. diet yeah like a, like a diet in in that like you know generally what you want to stay away from and what you want to have and then recognize that there's some room for moderation and moderation means both serving size and frequency of how often you have it okay um can i ask you some patreon questions hit me yeah let's do it okay uh we're going to inject you with patreon questions 
So ask nice doctors stupid questions and stay tuned for next week's episode, which has more of your questions about staying healthy and affording insulin and supporting people you love who have diabetes, how to avoid getting diabetes yourself. So to follow Dr. Natter in the meantime, he's Mike.Natter on Instagram or Mike underscore Natter on Twitter. We are ologies at both and I'm Allie Ward with one L on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, links to Beyond Type 1 and the sponsors of the show are in the show notes and up at AllieWard.com slash ologies slash diabetology. Ologies merch is available at ologiesmerch.com or up at alleyward.com. Thank you to sisters Shannon Feltis and Bonnie Dutch. They are hilarious and they run all that merch and they host a podcast called You Are That, which is so funny. Thank you to Aaron and Hannah who have admined the Facebook group since the start. Emily White organizes all the transcripts and we are catching up fast. There are links to bleeped episodes and transcripts in the show notes. Jared Sleeper of the mental health podcast My Good Bad Brain does assistant editing. And thanks, of course, to he who is sweet and not insipid, Stephen Ray Morris for putting all the parts of the episode together and getting it out on time. Nick Thorburn wrote and performed theme music. He's in a band called Islands. Listen to them. And if you stick around until the end of the episode, you know I tell you a secret. Whew. This week, I'm going to share a little hot tip for my fellow folks who have sleep procrastination or fall asleep in their clothes a lot. So at 8 p.m., this is a new habit, I make myself get ready for bed, even if I have no intention of sleeping for like hours. That way, at like 11.30, when I'm super tired, I don't have to splash cold water on my face and have it run down my sleeves and essentially look like a possum who's been attacked by a garden hose. So baby steps, kids. Get ready for bed hours early. It helps with the sleep procrastination. Okay, so next week, we get emotional. We have more living tips on how to avoid or afford the betas. So meet me back here. Bye-bye. Pachydermatology, homeology, cryptozoology, lithology, nanotechnology, meteorology, There are so many new ways for you to treat your diabetes.